Uh, once again, I want to reiterate that this podcast is not intended to be an extremely elaborate or detailed account of any of the events that I cover over the course of the podcast. All it is is supposed to be a crash course in all of the events that took place that I cover. So, if you want to learn more about anything that I cover on this podcast, I almost want to say visit your local library, but I'm not going to say that. But feel free to do your own research. I always encourage that. So, with that being said, enjoy the show. Welcome back to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened. And today, the stuff that happened that we're going to be talking about is called the Bay of Pigs Invasion. And the Bay of Pigs Invasion was a failed invasion off the island of Cuba by Cuban rebels aided by the United States happening in the year 1961, conducted primarily by the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, and often cited as his biggest presidential blunder. That's what we're talking about today. This is going to be a longer one because there's a lot to cover about this, this situation, and uh, I'm excited about this one. So let's get down to it. First and foremost, to say the operation was risky is putting it very lightly because we're talking about an action that could have resulted in a third world war. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. To understand the causation of the Bay of Pigs invasion, I need to firehose you with a brief history of Cuba. So colonized by the Spanish in 1511, almost 20 years after Columbus arrived in the Americas, Cuba steadily grew with a mix of indigenous population, slave population, and Spanish population for several centuries until the outbreak of the Spanish-American War in 1898, when an American ship in the Havana Harbor called the USS Maine exploded. The United States government blamed the Spanish for the explosion, claiming it was an act of sabotage, though later studies concluded that the explosion was caused by a fire that reached the ammunition storage of the ship. But regardless, a war began that lasted for several months, costing the lives of thousands and resulting in, among other things, a U.S. invasion of the Spanish colony of Cuba. Three civil wars had been raging in four decades preceding that U.S. invasion, and the United States saw an opportunity to assist the rebels in overthrowing the imperial government, while also establishing a national government sympathetic to the United States. This culminated in the Battle of Tayacoba, where the United States dropped 30 infantry and supplies on the shores of Cuba, assisting a contingent of nearly 400 Cuban rebels already engaged with Spanish troops. Unfortunately, the operation was a failure, and the soldiers were rescued from the same beach under heavy fire. This battle wasn't massively significant in the grand scheme of things, but I want you to remember it because we will be drawing some parallels between it and the invasion that happened in 1961. The most famous battles were the Battle of El Caney and San Juan Hill, where our good friend Teddy Roosevelt stormed the field with his rough riders and ousted the Spanish army from the island altogether. But that's not what we're talking about today. Basically, after the Spanish army left Cuba, there was about a three-year interim period where the United States assumed control of a colonial Cuban government before the establishment of the F Cuban government in 1902. But the government established in 1902 was plagued with problems. While many Cubans had fought together for independence, many had different ideas about the government they were fighting to create. And the next 40 years were rife with insurgencies and protests, the U.S. stepped in more than once to intervene while elected officials on the island became corrupt. In 1924, there was a tourist boom which led to increased gambling and prostitution on the island, frowned upon by the conservative factions of the country, and the Wall Street crash of 1929, which I did an episode on before, resulted in a collapse in the prices of sugar, one of the main exports of the island. 
Four years later, a revolution began, resulting in an overthrow of the Republic and an establishment of a fragile provisional government. I, I want to emphasize that this provisional government was very fragile because it again collapsed in 1940. In the next 20 years, a new constitution was adopted, and though several governments took control with other failed arms ins armed insurgencies racking the land, Cuba saw moderate prosperity. And in 1958, it was considered one of the most prosperous countries in Latin America. Enter Fidel Castro. Born in the tiny hamlet of Biren, Cuba, on August 13, 1926, to a wealthy Spanish farmer, Castro didn't have the proletariat backstory that many communist leaders used to bolster their credibility. But rather, Castro adopted a lot of anti-imperialist ideologies while he was studying law at the University of Havana, and participated in popular uprisings in the Dominican Republic and Colombia. Castro adopted his far-left opinions as many of the leaders he ousted were hyper-capitalist and generally fell on the right side of the political spectrum. Castro adopted a Marxist-Leninist ideology, and after leading a revolutionary force in a lengthy guerrilla war against the corrupt government in Cuba, Castro overthrew the president of Cuba and declared himself the prime minister of the country in 1959. He planned to unite the Cuban political system under one party, the Communist Party, making Cuba a socialist state. He restricted the press, releasing only state-controlled material, and offered monetary and material support for anti-imperialist revolutions abroad in Chile, Nicaragua, and Granada. He centralized the economy, he created broad social welfare programs, he nationalized many industrial businesses in the country, and then he started expressing sentiments aligned with the Soviet Union. This was at one of the most tense points of the Cold War. Needless to say, the American government was not a fan. Castro told American oil rigs in Cuban waters that they would begin refining oil from Soviet Union sources. Under pressure from the American government, these oil rigs refused. Castro responded by nationalizing the refineries, instructing all foreign workers to vacate. As retaliation, the United States canceled all importation of Cuban sugar, prompting Castro to nationalize all U.S.-owned industries in the country, including Coca-Cola and Sears Roebuck factories. To make matters worse, a French freighter carrying arms and ammunition exploded while unloading in Havana in March of 1960. Castro publicly accused the United States of sabotage, but the United States then expressly prohibited all exports to Cuba, with the exceptions of medical supplies and certain foods. Because the United States was acquainted with the idea of meddling in foreign affairs up to this point, they began to look at ways to get Castro out of office without being detected. Soon... Pockets of resistance to the new communist regime began to pop up in the mountainous regions of Cuba, waging a guerrilla war against Castro as long as they had breath. These guerrilla groups were armed and funded by exiled Cuban nationals in Florida, sympathetic politicians in the Dominican Republic, and, yes, the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States of America. Castro began a brutal crackdown of these counter-revolutionaries, inflicting horrendous psychological torture upon them. He arrested citizens involved with the old regime and began executing them. Among those executed was William Alexander Morgan, arrested and tried for counter-revolutionary activities. Interestingly enough, he had fought alongside Castro's forces in the Cuban Revolution, opposed to the corrupt Cuban regime Castro sought to overthrow, but had switched sides when Castro started censoring the press and showing communist leanings. He was found guilty of supplying the counter-revolutionary forces, and on March 11, 1961, he was executed on Cuban soil. 
he was an American national. By this time, the CIA had begun actively trying to snuff out Castro for almost a year. In 1960, they had officially begun drawing up plans to assassinate the communist leader, but nothing had yet come to fruition. Led by Dwight D. Eisenhower, the President of the United States at the time, the CIA had concocted a daring plan that would never take place, called the Trinidad Plan. I think it's worth mentioning that the man overseeing these plans was the Deputy Director of Plans for the CIA, named Richard M. Bissell Jr. Knowing his name isn't that important, but what should be remembered is that our friend Richard assembled a team to aid him in these designs, among these David Phillips, Gary Droller, and E. Howard Hunt. Again, these names are not pivotal in understanding what happened overall, but these three men had worked together to set off the 1954 Guatemalan coup, where the United States instigated a government overthrow. They'd done it before. It seemed suitable for them to be part of the committee to make it happen again. In the Trinidad plan, Brigade 2506, a collection of around 1,200 Cuban rebels opposed to Castro's regime, would be trained in the United States with the intention of invading Cuba. Initially, a small force would create a diversionary attack at the province of Oriente, the easternmost province of the island, which has since been divided into several smaller provinces. Castro would send his men to crush that attack, while the main force of over 1,000 men would assault Casilda, a port town near the city of Trinidad. At Casilda, the force would establish a beachhead, where the United States would transfer a revolutionary government to the island and would, with its allies, endorse this government as the rightful governing body of Cuba. It was a bold plan. The plan was not able to be put into action before Eisenhower took office, and when John F. Kennedy became the president-elect, Eisenhower met with the young politician to divulge the secret plot to overthrow the Cuban government. Since 1960, the United States had already been training Brigade 2506 and preparing them for the invasion, housing them on a small island off the coast of Florida. JFK was unnerved by the brashness of the plan, and when he was sworn into office, he decided to scale back on the measures that would be taken. JFK observed that the ice the relations between the United States and the Soviet Union rested on was growing thinner by the minute, and thought a more subversive ploy would be a safer alternative. Rather than storming the island guns blazing, JFK decided that the invasion should happen at night, and he moved the landing location from Trinidad to a quieter sector of the island called Zapata, specifically in a small bay called the Bay of Pigs. Kennedy worked with the State Department, who presented the reasoning that an airfield of the necessary size to support B-26 bombers, which would be pivotal in the operation, did not exist near Trinidad, and bombers would need to be flown in from off-island, giving plenty of proof that the United States was involved in the operation. Kennedy approved the Bay of Pigs plan because there was an airfield long enough to hold the B-26 bombers, it was far away from a large group of civilians, and it was less, quote, noise, militarily making plausible deniability a more believable option if the plan were to go awry. The problem with the plan was also location. The Trinidad plan had a contingency protocol for an operational failure. Trinidad was near the Escambre Mountains, which rebels had hidden out in during the many Cuban uprisings. If the Trinidad plan fell apart, the rebels were to run for the hills, literally. The Bay of Pigs plan did not have such a contingency plan. Later, many staff leaders would express that they had doubts about the plan, but they kept their mouths shut. It was the Cold War, and Kennedy had a campaign promise to deliver on. In March of 1961, Kennedy assisted in creating the Cuban Revolutionary Council, which would replace the Castro regime upon the invasion's success. 
Everything was in order for the overthrow of the Castro regime. Kennedy set the new plan into action on April 9, 1961, rounding up Brigade 2506, now called the Democratic Revolutionary Front, and preparing them for battle. On the 14th of April, the fleet carrying the Cuban defectors set sail for the Bay of Pigs in the middle of the night. Later that same night, the first diversionary attack was launched at Baracoa, near the eastern tip of Cuba. At 6 a.m. on April 15th, three groups of B-26 bombers painted with the flags of, Cu of the Cuban military and flown by defectors bombed three Cuban airfields simultaneously. The intentions were to incapacitate the Cuban Air Force in preparation for the invasion, and they destroyed at least 12 aircraft while also successfully damaging those airfields. Just after these B-26s launched, Kennedy attempted his most daring act of deception. A single bomber was launched following the three groups preceding it, painted with the same false flags, but this bomber was painted to appear that it had been fired upon, as well as given superficial bullet holes. When a safe distance from Cuba, the pilot radioed a mayday call, requesting permission to land in Miami. Obviously, permission was granted. Upon landing, the plane taxied to a militarized section of the airport and was immediately met with several government vehicles as the pilot exited the craft. The pilot in question was Mario Zuniga, a veteran of the Cuban Air Force pre-Castro who had defected following the revolution. Mario took on the persona of Juan Garcia, a surname, and publicly claimed that he had defected with three of his friends. He was granted political asylum the next day. Kennedy hoped that this operation would convince the wider world that this attack was the work of anti-communist insurgents and did not involve any of the outside perpetrators. This was successful, and much of the world media was convinced of the United States' uninvolvement. The same day Mario Zuniga was granted asylum in the United States, the United Nations met to discuss the issue. Cuban Ambassador Raul Roa accused the United States of the airstrikes against Cuba. The U.S. Ambassador, Adlai Stevenson, denied these claims and stated that under absolutely no circumstances would U.S. armed forces ever intervene in Cuban affairs, and that the United States would do everything in its power to keep American citizens from participating in the actions against Cuba. Adlai Stevenson proceeded to state that the attacks were done solely by Cuban defectors, and presented the evidence from our friend Juan Garcia, better known as Mario Zuniga, that Cuban defectors had been fired upon while bombing Cuban airfields. Now, before we group Ambassador Adlai with the lying bunch, there's more to Adlai's story. He was often seen as an outsider in Kennedy's administration, and he personally disagreed with some of Kennedy's policies, but was forced to support U.S. foreign policy with no arguments when in the presence of the United Nations. Because of this, Kennedy had briefed him on a possible action of Cuban defectors against Castro's regime, but had neglected to highlight any of the U.S. involvement. Adlai cannot be held accountable for lying to the United Nations because he told the United Nations exactly what he was aware of. That's how deep in secrecy this plan went. Between the 16th and the 17th of April, several smaller armed uprisings were attempted in the deeper country of Cuba. All were unsuccessful, with very few survivors. On the morning of the 17th, the main force arrived. Another diversionary attack had been attempted during the night, with flotillas broadcasting the sounds of ships and landing craft on the beach, which briefly lured Castro's armies away from the Bay of Pigs. By 6.30 a.m., most of the attack force of 1,200 men had landed, but Castro had become aware of the landing parties and ordered airstrikes against them. At 7.30 a.m., several squads of paratroopers landed nearby, but were instantly surrounded by militiamen. 
Though the training they'd received in the United States gave them the ability to hold their own against the ill-trained militiamen, they were puzzled as to how it seemed that Castro's regime was so ready to meet them. How is it that such a secret operation had such a prepared resistance? Let's backtrack. Remember how Castro was pretty sympathetic to the Soviet Union? Well, in the 1960s, the Soviets' list of allies was pretty sparse globally, and if someone scratched their back, they'd return the favor. Enter the KGB. As some members of Brigade 2506 had loose lips in Miami, KGB units had picked up on it. Don't ask me how, the KGB is like a mythical force to me. The agents phoned Castro as quickly as they could, and Castro made sure his army was ready to meet the insurgents. Combine this with the fact that essentially the entire population owned weapons and were prepared to use them by decree of Castro's regime, he knew he wasn't well liked among his neighbors, and with his complete control of the press, he convinced the populace not only that an invasion was possible, but that it was inevitable, and that everyone who would perpetrate such an act would decimate the population in cruel ways. Kennedy was hoping for a popular uprising. His hope was misplaced. Alright, back to the action. The objective of the paratroopers was to cut supply lines and destroy roads and bridges, delaying Castro's response to the invasion. With the amount of militia they encountered, this became impossible, and Cuban troops flooded toward the invasion force. Around noon, the two forces had begun to clash on a larger scale. An advanced group of nearly 400 rebels were holding their ground. Initially, the operation seemed to be going well for the defectors, as several positions held by the militiamen were wiped out by the tanks that the Americans had lent to the invaders. But things went south very quickly. Groups of paratroopers were all but lost, and the freighters carrying supplies to the Bay of Pigs fled when they saw that the mission of the paratroopers had been a disaster. By nightfall, the invaders had set up a beachhead at the town called San Blas, but it was coming under constant fire from Cuban counterattacks. Men began to fall, casualties mounted, and as, as the ships meant to supply the men failed to return, hope began to fade. Several desperate airdrops carrying ammunition and medical supplies were successful, but at the rate the Cuban army was counterattacking, it was a lost cause. But the Cuban defectors were not going to give up quite so easy. The next day, Castro's forces upped their game, bringing Soviet tanks to crush the attacking force after a lengthy artillery bombardment. But the artillery had mostly missed the attackers, and the rebels had prepared for what came next. The tanks rolled into an ambush at San Blas, and several tanks were destroyed, resulting in a rout. Despite inflicting heavy casualties upon Castro's forces, a shortage of ammunition forced the leaders of the rebels to begin to call for a general retreat, and Castro pressed his attack once again. At this point, ammunition levels were critical, and some leaders suggested fleeing into the mountains with the men they had left to wage guerrilla warfare, but others decided that they'd come too far to quit now, and the beachhead was to be held at all costs. Castro observed the beachhead, seeing that it was held by hundreds of men who had inflicted heavy casualties upon his army, including several armored vehicles. He halted his attack, re-evaluating the situation. The Cuban rebels had a moment to breathe. During this time, the B-26s fighting for the rebels had been running sorties throughout the country, but as fighting grew chaotic, they began bombing with abandon, murdering dozens of Cuban civilians in the process. Very quickly, the operation was falling apart. As the United States watched their plan fail, they grew desperate and ordered American nationals to assist in the effort. This resulted in four American airmen being shot down over Cuba. All of them died. Remember how the Soviet Union would scratch the backs of those who scratched theirs? Well, around this time, 
Kennedy received a telegram from Nikita Khrushchev himself, the leader of the Soviet Union. If a single American soldier set foot on Cuban soil, it would be nuclear annihilation. Kennedy's hands were tied. All he could do now was watch. While pockets of resistance still remained, the rebel forces were facing a mounting crisis of ammunition. Castro, encouraged by Khrushchev's threats, launched another tank assault on the town of San Blas, and the rebels did not have the means to fight it off this time. A general disorganized retreat began back to the beach under considerable fire from the Cuban ground forces. Two disguised American destroyers moved into the bay to, in an attempt to evacuate the surviving rebels. But tank fire from the shore forced them to retreat. The rebels held the beach for several hours longer, but surrounded by hundreds of wounded and dozens more dead, late in the day, they were forced to surrender, with Castro taking over 1,000 men as prisoners. In ensuing days, several covert operations by the CIA would scour nearby beaches for survivors and would rescue nearly 30 rebels who had escaped capture, but the operation was a total failure. 120 Cuban rebels had been killed, with hundreds wounded and over a thousand captured. Exact numbers on casualties sustained by Castro's men are hard to come by, but significantly more were killed by the rebel forces than were inflicted upon them. News of the attack began to circulate, and photos of planes lent to the Cuban rebels were purposefully released by Castro. Even though the B-26 bombers had been painted to seem stolen from the Cuban Air Force, the crafts were designed by Douglas Aircraft Company, which was centered in Southern California, and the B-26 had been put into action in World War II and the Korean War by the United States. The craft had been built exclusively for use by the United States and her allies. If the rebels had been using a single B-26 among other planes, plausible deniability would still be an option, but the pictures clearly showed that eight bombers had been used to attack Castro's regime, all but proving that the American government had lent the bombers to the Cuban defectors. The world turned to the United States and John F. Kennedy for answers. In response, on April 21st, 1961, Kennedy publicly addressed the nation and took full responsibility for the attack. Remember our friend Adlai Stevenson, ambassador to the United Nations, who hadn't been briefed on the invasion plans and had declared to the world with absolute certainty that the United States had absolutely no involvement in the Bay of Pigs invasion? He was humiliated and furious. Speaking to his government, Adlai Stevenson said, I took this job on the understanding that I would be consulted and briefed on everything. Now my credibility is compromised and therefore my usefulness. Stevenson realized that his own government had tricked him and seriously considered resigning as ambassador, but Kennedy pleaded with him to stay in office. Reluctantly, he stuck around and became one of the most valuable assets to the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis as he was fearless in pressuring Russian diplomats about their involvement in the crisis. The attack was a complete disaster. Not only were the rebels defeated, but Castro spun the attack in a positive light for himself, solidifying his communist revolutionary rhetoric among the people who, again, rallied behind him. The emergence of a foreign threat on the American continent gave the people a common enemy, and any popular uprising became even more unlikely. So why did the invasion at the Bay of Pigs fail? 
Well, first, the overnight bombings of Cuban airfields was intended to incapacitate the Cuban Air Force. While airfields were damaged and crafts were destroyed, Castro had hidden many of his aircraft in the jungles of the island and had plenty to hit the invaders with once the attack was underway. These planes were able to either sink or drive off almost all ships bringing supplies to the invaders, while also harassing bombers who were attempting to fly more sorties as the attack fell apart. Second, Castro had sources in the KGB warning him that an invasion was coming, and he prepared himself and his armies and the population accordingly. Cuba was not a nation with a military, but the nation itself had become the military. The rebels were able to fight off wave after wave of militia who were ill-trained and ill-equipped, but they could not do so forever as the numbers were overwhelming. It doesn't matter how strong a fire is if you have enough water to put it out. Third, Kennedy was counting on a popular uprising sparked by the invasion. He believed that the populace in the Bay of Pigs was sick of Castro and his communist rhetoric and would be happy to join another revolutionary force. Sources that at the time cited that no such uprising took place and the people were firmly behind Castro. But this was not entirely accurate. When Castro heard of a possible invasion, he ordered that anywhere between 20,000 and 100,000 people who could possibly be sympathetic to the popular uprising be arrested, only days before the rebels landed at the Bay of Pigs. Without this action, it's entirely possible that Kennedy's plan may have worked, but Castro was one step ahead. The United States spent the next year doing damage control on the world stage until the onset of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, when the free world turned again against the Soviet Union. The resistance of Castro to an invasion funded by Big Bad Uncle Sam inspired other communist movements in Central America, notably in Belize, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Panama, all of which would experience communist revolutions, insurgencies, or military coups in the 1970s in a series of events known as the Central American Crisis. The Bay of Pigs backfired on Kennedy in every possible way, and it is why it would be known as Kennedy's Blunder. Castro's position in Cuban leadership was all but immortalized. He declared the victory over the rebels, quote, the first imperialist defeat in the Americas. And the same victory would make him a populist leader in Cuba, where he would rule until 2008, one year short of half a century. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the story of the Bay of Pigs invasion. Thanks for joining me today on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I hope you're all doing well in this crazy quarantine we've got going on. It seems like things are starting to taper off a little bit. It seems like things are starting to get a little bit better in the world. And I'm really grateful for it. I don't know how much longer this is going to last, but I'll be around creating more podcasts, telling more stories. I've already decided on the subject for next week, and I'm excited to share it with you all. So thank you for joining me on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and I am signing off for today. Enjoy your day.